You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is the Chief Finance Correspondent at Business Insider. He is the publication's senior reporter covering Wall Street after a decade at Bloomberg writing for its wire service Business Week and Markets Magazine. At Insider, he writes and reports about Wall Street and the broader finance industry, often working with confidential sources to uncover issues that management teams and other subjects would rather keep quiet. His latest book is titled Going Public. How Silicon Valley Rebels Loosened Wall Street's Grip on the IPO and Sparked a Revolution. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show, Dakin Campbell. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background. Yeah, so I've been a reporter for a little more than 15 years now. Um, I came to this as sort of a second career and went to Columbia Journalism School and I've been writing about business and finance ever since. I spent the first 10 at Bloomberg and uh, now five, roughly five at Insider. Um, and, you know, I've always been very interested in in finance and economics and, and business. And so I think we'll get into some, some interesting topics here. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, so your latest book is titled How Silicon Valley Rebels Loosened Wall Street's Grip on the IPO and Sparked a Revolution. So for our listeners who aren't familiar, can you give us a quick explanation of the basics of the traditional IPO and what purposes it conventionally serves? Sure. So an IPO is really the first time that a company sells its stock to public market investors. And it's really a way for the company to raise new money. You know, they issue new shares and uh, they take that money that they get and use it for various things like hiring employees and R&D and, and things like that. Sure. So you, you you begin your book with sort of this this anecdote about Steve Jobs and Morgan Stanley from when Apple went public, which you used to highlight the perverse incentives that plague uh, these these traditional IPOs. So I think there's been sort of a negative public perception of IPOs as a way for let's say banks and, and ultra rich investors to make a quick buck that was uh, you know out of reach for everyday retail investors. So can you tell us about some of these these incentive flaws with IPOs or at least the ones that used to to exist as when when IPOs were done conventionally? Yeah. So and it's worth noting that IPOs are still being done conventionally. The the types of um, transactions that I talk about in my book are really still a small fraction of the overall market volume. But um, a lot of people hope that they will expand, obviously, in in number. Um, the thing to know about an IPO is it is the first time that uh, companies sell shares to public investors. But there are really two stages to it. Everybody thinks that um, an IPO is like the first time that stocks start trading on an exchange. But that's actually not the IPO. The IPO takes place the night before when the shares are sold by investment banks to big institutional investors. And that's sort of you know, the first step in, the, uh, in what we think of as the IPO process. The second step is when the shares the next morning get um, listed on the exchange. And, and then 
and that's really when uh, retail investors like you and me can get our first chance at buying those shares. People who say that the IPO market is is broken or that there are conflicts are really very focused on the night before when the investment banks sell the shares to professional investors. And for various reasons that maybe we don't want to get into, retail investors are not invited into that meeting or those discussions. And it's really uh, bankers talking to the investors that are their best clients, the investors who buy deals from them, who bring them trading business. And so there's really a um, the bank has a is conflicted because it wants to keep those investors happy so that they keep coming back to the bank uh, and paying fees and, and trading commissions. But the bank also has to think about the company whose shares it is selling. And obviously, the company wants to sell the shares for as high of a price as possible because it wants to get as much money as it can, as it as it possibly can, but the investors want to buy the shares for as low of a price as possible so that they can bring them to the market the next day and potentially sell them uh, for a much higher price. And so um, it really puts bankers in a very conflicted position representing uh, clients on sort of two opposing or the two opposing sides of the transaction. Yeah. And obviously, Steve Jobs and, and many like him, this this would have been a, a source of, of you know, a, a significant amount of frustration for them. Um, so in the blurb, you, you describe this book as a tour of how a visionary band of startup executives, venture capitalists, and maverick bankers has launched a crusade to upend the traditional IPO as we know it. So can you walk us through this premise? Yes. Yeah, so... Uh... Maybe it's not surprising to your readers that folks uh, on the East Coast in the finance industry that have grown up uh, with the traditional IPO market uh, developing over decades and decades aren't the first people that might uh, come around and try to change it. And so it really took uh, the different way of thinking that folks on the West Coast, you know, traditional Silicon Valley players, uh, brought to the process to really bring about change. Um, you know, these are people who are, um, you know, startup founders who are really thinking about how to um, hack the system or come up with a better way of doing something. And so uh, they turned that focus uh, over the last, call it five years, really, um, to reimagining how the IPO process could be done. Now, the Steve Jobs anecdote goes all the way back to 1980 and when Apple uh, first sold shares to the public and, and uh, became a public company. And even back then, the, the point of the anecdote is even back then, people were uh, looking at this IPO process and thinking that maybe that conflicted position that the banks uh, are in that night before the shares start trading was um, a cause for concern or um uh you know a reason to question how the process had been had been put together and so the anecdote i lead with is uh is really steve jobs in a room settling the uh the price that apple shares should uh be sold in the ipo and he's really questioning his bankers why they want to price it at the um at the price that they want to because he'd heard that retail investors 
were willing to pay a much higher price. And so he sort of calls them out on that. And I thought that was a good way to open the book because it really introduces readers to uh, this conflict that I say is at the heart of the process and uh, really what uh, people set out to change over the next, you know, 40 plus years. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, that's that's sort of one of the points that, that tends to frustrate uh, your your average retail investor, because when you look at the IPO price and then you look at the, the price that the stock is trading for the next day, uh, you know, even as soon as the market opens, what happens to it? And, and, you know, the vast majority of cases, the price will go up from, from what the institutional investors bought it at and, and often quite significantly. And, I mean, even if, even if a retail investor wanted to take that risk and say that, that the, the institutional investor has access to, they're sort of locked out of it. And so it's just a way for, you know, a, a specific ultra rich subset of investors. To, to make a lot of money um, in in coordination with the banks that, faci- that that facilitate that 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 you know all the other investors are locked out of and so you know obviously that would annoy the company because they're getting charged a fee for the bank to make money for their investors which is going to attract more money to that bank so the bank's making money the investors are making money but the people are getting screwed out of theirs their their um, returns and obviously the company isn't doing too well on that deal either so it seems like you know the bank has sort of a stranglehold on this process. Yeah, I mean, if you're a, a company, a CFO or something, and you know you sell your shares to the bank and those professional investors the night before for twenty five dollars, and then you know, lo and behold, the next day it's selling for fifty dollars. I mean, you could have gotten twice the amount of money into your coffers that you could have used to pay bonuses or hire more engineers or try to develop some new products. So um, that's really at the heart of the the frustration. Um, and you know, if there was a mechanism to pull pull all of the investors into one auction, so that maybe the company could sell its shares at thirty seven dollars and fifty cents or something, that's what um, that's what people have tried to do, and that that's what um, the first direct listing, uh, which was done by Spotify in two thousand eighteen, uh, sort of began to get at. So yeah, let's let's talk about the Spotify case study because it's it's quite interesting the the direct listing that Spotify did. So can you give us a, a quick rundown on on you know what what Spotify did and why that um, perhaps conferred an advantage? Yeah, so Spotify uh, designed, I guess I would call a new process. It had been done by uh, sort of marginal companies in the past, but they were the first ones to really bring it to the big unicorns or the big tech companies going public. And all they did was they took shares that were issued that they'd issued already to venture capitalists or employees and they listed them on the exchange uh, uh during that sort of first day of trading. So there was no meeting with bankers and investors the night before and there was no uh sort of professional investors getting a first look at the shares uh, before retail investors did, it was basically um, you know anybody who wanted to sell Spotify shares on the morning that it started trading could uh, could bring them to their bankers or their retail brokers or, or to the exchange, and anybody who wanted to buy could come into that auction and and buy shares. And so, because it put all investors on an even uh, playing field or even footing. Uh, it really addressed many of the um, the concerns that people have had over the years with the traditional IPO. And now, so that's 
sorry. One uh, one other caveat. One other. Sorry to speak over you. One other caveat to mention is there is a big difference between the direct listing and the traditional IPO, and that is the traditional IPO raises raises money for the company because they're issuing new shares. In a direct listing, the company is just taking shares they've already issued and listing them on the exchange. So the company doesn't get any new money. And because many companies use IPOs to raise new money, um, they haven't flocked to the direct listing that Spotify sort of pioneered in a way that um, that some people had hoped. Most tech companies, when they're going to the public markets, want to raise more money. And so they're sort of... Um, you know they have to use the IPO. Now the SEC has uh, paved the way for a direct listing for for companies to raise money, new money alongside a direct listing, but nobody has done that yet. And so, do you do you say perhaps foresee any disadvantages to this new path that the SEC is paving, where you can create new money and go down the direct direct listing pathway, and, and that way the company gets to to maximize the amount of money that it makes. I think the SEC is very worried about uh, making sure that investors are um, properly notified. So just to back up just a little bit, in a traditional IPO, uh, companies put out a prospectus, and as you get closer to selling the shares, you have to put the price that the shares are going to sell, the range, in the prospectus so that all investors uh, get some notice of what price it could go at. What the SEC is really worried about is that if a direct if if a company does a direct listing with a capital raise, investors won't have enough time to know what the price uh, what price the shares will be, will be trading at, and so that's from my understanding that's sort of the big hang up uh, in the SEC's mind, and maybe why company a company hasn't tried this yet because a direct listing is. That auction on the first day of trading, and if you go in at nine a.m. and the stock is, you know, it looks like people want to buy the stock at thirty dollars, but in the next few hours it goes up to fifty dollars or a hundred dollars or something. The SEC worries that 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 change in price uh, would happen too quickly for investors to be properly notified, and so um, that's a real sticking point. And and some people are trying to figure out if maybe. There's a way to, um, you know, stop the process for an hour or something while, you know, all all investors get an alert or something like that. But I think it, the mechanics of it haven't yet been been worked out. But but I think if you can establish that and and work through it, then it would make a lot more sense for a lot more companies. Companies would get to raise new money, and they would get to price the shares in an auction. That involved all investors, both professional investors and also retail investors, and so um, you'd have the widest scope of demand for those shares. And theoretically, it would mean the companies would be able to to sell their shares at a higher price. So, couldn't the SEC just step in directly and and say, you know, put limitations on how banks are, are allowed to, you know, issue? Uh, 
issue the shares that they get or, or brokerages uh, exclusively to their institutional investors? Can't the SEC just stop it, step in and say, no, you have to democratize that process and, and everyone should have access to it or, or the highest bidder should have access to it? Yes, I, I think the SEC probably doesn't want to come in and be so prescriptive. Um, you know, years ago, retail brokerages and the retail investors that they represented played a much bigger part in IPOs. And for various reasons, um, you know, in part because they're because the commissions on on trading have come down so much over the last few decades, uh, retail brokerages do not play as big of a role in uh, IPOs as they used to. And so it's gone, uh, the vast, vast majority of the shares go to um, you know, professional investors and retail brokerages aren't even involved in the process. If you went back to like the 80s or something, then you would have these regional brokers or even, you know, in, I talk about the Ford IPO in 1956. Uh, there were something like 722 banks on the uh, Ford IPO prospectus. I mean, it went on for pages. And most of those were sort of retail um, and, or sorry, regional brokerages that represented mom and pop investors. And they would get a small percentage of the shares that they would then turn around and offer to their investors. But as the industry is consolidated and as salespeople, um, the number of salespeople have shrunk because trading commissions have shrunk. Um, you know, regional brokerages have become a much, much, much smaller part of the process. So, I mean, you you also spend uh, quite a bit of time in this book talking about WeWork. Uh, you know, what you mentioned is is the one that got you interested in this topic, and and I think that serves as a, a really interesting case study to sort of understand some of the the mechanics of of the IPO process. So, most people remember that one is is perhaps one of the biggest corporate humiliation stories in recent memory with WeWork being exposed and shrunk down to a tiny fraction of, of what it purported to be worth. So can you tell us what, you know, what the, the big deal was with this, this story in particular? Yeah. So it was really, it was certainly the beginning of my uh, book writing process. Uh, I wrote a big story about how it all came crashing down for WeWork and that got the attention of an agent um, who reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to to write a book about the about WeWork, but the thing that really struck me was the IPO process really failed WeWork. You know, uh, you had investment banks who were pitching WeWork to lead its IPO, giving it really high valuations, even higher than uh, what it had been valued at, and saying, "Listen, if we sell your shares in the public, you know, we should be able to get you a valuation of sixty or eighty billion dollars." Um, WeWork was valued at $47 billion. And the banks really didn't – and then when when WeWork did choose the banks and they got into the process, uh, it did just from an outsider's perspective, it didn't seem like the banks really served WeWork well. Uh, you know, the advice that they gave them or didn't give the company, um, you know, really didn't help – the, at the prospectus, which we've been talking about, or really didn't help position the company uh, properly in the market with investors. And so, you know, a lot of what has been focused on with the WeWork story is just the CEO and the founder, Adam Newman, and sort of how um, over the top he is. But I think, you know, one of the things that gets missed sometimes is 
the role that the banks had in enabling WeWork and in making Adam Newman and others at WeWork think that they could get these outrageous prices in the market when actually the you know investors were completely unwilling to pay those prices. So then I think that's that's sort of an important facet in the this going public process uh, of the IPO, which is that it it sort of uh curtails a lot of the the you know the the what's called the inexact nature of say, you know, private uh investing, maybe venture capital, uh, those kinds of things where investors are sort of you know looking at or, or making a play for tremendous future growth and then paying a premium based on that. I, I think public investors would, would be doing sort of a uh, you know, a, a more more harsh criticism, perhaps. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, the public markets uh, bring a lot of scrutiny and they bring a lot of, a lot of rigor to company executives and, and company operations. And so, you know, one of the big trends in the last few decades has been companies staying private for longer, and sort of what that means. Um, and you know, one of the things it means is that these companies. And their executive teams are not being stress tested by uh, public market investors who ultimately it's about profits. It's not about uh, growth. And, um, you know, whereas venture capitalists certainly in the, in the run up uh, and in the late, in the last boom, it was all about growth. And, you know, you worry about profits later. Uh, but once you get into the public markets, uh, public market investors really want to see earnings and, um, they want to see uh, they want to see profits, and so that really brings uh, what I would argue is needed discipline to companies. Okay, and so something something else that sort of seems a little bit odd to me is that it took so long for this traditional IPO process to be upended um, by these these Silicon Valley firms. It, it, if it's something that Steve Jobs could tell was problematic half a century ago. How come it took this long for, say, the modern private funding infrastructure that facilitates direct listings and other changes that, that you mentioned to, to come about? Why was it the Silicon Valley rebels in particular that were able to spark this revolution after so many decades of traditional IPOs as opposed to those that came before them? Yeah, I think there are a couple big reasons. You know, the first one is just the incentives. You know, the banks make good money on the IPOs, uh, on the traditional IPO, and they like having something to offer their professional investors. And so a lot of companies uh, are have executives that have never done an IPO before. Maybe they've done one uh, or two before at most. And so the investment banks are really looked at as the uh, experts in this process. And, and their incentives are just stacked uh, in favor of them uh, keeping the process unchanged because it it works for them and they have control over it and um, it delivers you know good money and good fees into their into their coffers. Um, I think the other thing also is just uh, you know like status quo bias. This process, the traditional IPO, has been done this way since the mid '80s and. Um, people think it's worked pretty well or good enough, and um, and people have just sort of been unwilling to to change. You know, one example of this is the lockup provision, which basically says that insiders can't sell shares uh, until six months after the company has been trading publicly, and 
That's something that the SEC doesn't care about the lockup provision. That's that's something that the investment banks require. And it had been stuck at six months for decades. And in this latest wave of innovation, uh, startups have been pushing back on the bankers around that lockup provision. And 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 it was only then that the bankers said, well, okay, well, you know, it doesn't have to be six months. What if we did three months or what if we did something staggered? And those deals still went uh were successful and and they went smoothly. And so that's just one example of how status quo bias you know kept the lockup at six months for for years, even though it didn't necessarily make sense or there could have been a different way of doing it. And so you know, the argument I make in the book is that Spotify's direct listing in 2018, not only did it spark other direct listings, but it also reminded other startups that they could do all sorts of new things around an IPO. Even if they wanted to do a traditional IPO with investment banks involved, there were, you know, lots of different things they could negotiate. And so it really uncorked this this wave of innovation that I think is is really interesting. So then based on this trend, uh, what, what do you think are further changes to come perhaps in the next 5, 10, 20 years? It's a good question. I mean, the big uh, question, I think, uh, hanging over the market is, you know, there have been no IPOs for uh, a year or more. And, um, you know, people want to know when we start seeing IPOs again, will we see some of this innovation that I write about in my book? Or will the whole industry sort of go back to the times before and just stick with the traditional IPO? Um, when I was talking to people during the reporting of this, you know, one thing I heard a lot was, "Oh, well, this is this is just a boom market phenomenon." You know, if people felt worried or they felt like there was a lot of risk, then they wouldn't be willing to, um, you know, take these these chances on on trying something new. And as soon as you get a bear market, people are going to be fearful again, and they're going to go back to the traditional IPO, the thing they. Um, that is, you know, tried and true, and has been tested in all sorts of cycles. And so, I think now we're waiting to see um, whether the innovation will stick, and whether startup companies will still feel comfortable uh, pushing their investment bankers to do to do different things, or whether they'll still feel like they can they can try new things, or whether they go back to the same old, same old, and and start doing traditional IPOs again. And I think without a bunch of deals, it's sort of hard to know um, which way it'll go. Okay. But is there a, a downside for, say, a company like Spotify, which doesn't exactly need new money to go down the du- direct listing path? Is, is there you know, perhaps any, any advantages whatsoever in that situation that a traditional IPO would confer that would make it more appealing in, say, a bear market or recession situation? Yes. I mean, one thing uh, that people talk quite a bit about is the traditional IPO is essentially a marketing event. And so, if you are not a company like Spotify or Slack or Warby Parker, all of which did direct listings, and you aren't so well known by consumers or retail investors, then you really need to rely on investment bankers to market your company, to position it to investors, to tell investors uh, why it's a great company and why they should 
buy it when it when the IPO comes. And I'm not sure I buy that because of sort of where the um because of the you know the internet and uh marketing and social media it seems like if you're an enterprise software company and uh you want to get known by a, a broad group of investors it seems like you could just for a fraction of the cost it would take you to pay your investment bankers you could hire a marketing firm or um a strategic PR firm or something and still get the same uh sort of bang for your buck uh or you know market yourself to the investors you want to but i will say that is a narrative that continues to exist in the market and so a lot of companies if they are not direct consumer companies um still think to this day that they um that they need investment bankers to tell their story and so in bear markets um there's an argument to be made by some that the need for investment bankers to tell a company's story is even more needed because you've got to convince investors that this is not risky or that it's a risk that they need to take um whereas you know a rising stock market sort of eases a lot of uh fears or concerns that investors might have so finally, to finish off today, I wanted to ask if there was anything you learned or any trends that you observed in researching or writing this book that were especially surprising or that you didn't expect. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing I one of the things I set out to learn with this book to really question is how conflicted investment bankers are. And I know we've talked a lot about it, and there's been there are a lot of people who uh, think that the IPO market is broken or that um, that the investment bankers are really conflicted. And so I really wanted to talk to people and to get inside these rooms to get anecdotes and to hear whether that was actually the case. And uh, I'm not sure if I was surprised or not, but you know, the story I came back with was that it actually it is the case. Um, and so, you know, I think that's I think that's interesting. And I think that's um it feels good to sort of be able to uh take a lot of those um those allegations or or um you know those beliefs and sort of put them through the paces and and stress test them and and come back and and report back on what I learned. Perfect. Uh well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dick, and it's been a pleasure. Yeah, this was great. Thanks yeah, a lot. Feel free to plug your book. Yeah, please. Um, you know, at your uh, bookseller of choice, please p- please pick up my book, uh, Going Public, How Silicon Valley Rebels Loosened Wall Street's Grip on the IPO and Sparked a Revolution. Perfect. Thank you so much, Dick. And thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.